ex worker. An audio strike against a monotone world. A twice monthly podcast of anarchist ideas and action. For everyone who dreams of a life off the clock. Welcome back to episode number three of The Ex Worker. Today we're going to be exploring green anarchism. We'll also hear a statement from a grand jury resistor, an interview with an anarchist activist against the Keystone XL pipeline, a review of Freddie Perlman's classic Against History, Against Leviathan, and so much more. My name is Alanis. And my name is Clara, and we'll be your hosts. If you want to learn more about anything we discuss on this episode, don't forget to check out our website at crimethink, that's C-R-I-M-E-T-H-I-N-C dot com slash podcast. And we want to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at crimethink.com, or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 202-59-NO-WORK. That is 202-596-6975. Let's get started. On this episode's Hot Wire, our report back from struggles around the globe over the last two weeks, we're first going to head to Washington, D.C., where anti-police protesters marched in solidarity with the NATO Five, Chicago-area activists who were imprisoned on trumped-up charges in an effort to prevent resistance to last year's North Atlantic Treaty Organization Summit. The march was part of a week of solidarity events across the country to publicize the NATO 5 case and protest the state's use of terrorism charges to crack down on anarchists and other radicals. In other state repression news, New York City anarchist Jerry Coach was arrested for refusing to testify before a grand jury. Here is a recording Jerry made explaining his decision to resist. My name is Jerry Coach, and by the time you are hearing this, I will be in federal prison for refusing to testify to a federal grand jury, which is to say refusing to snitch. I believe that what the FBI actually wants to come out of this situation is for me to turn over other people's names and information, which is something that I staunchly refuse to do. Therefore, I voluntarily choose to go to prison to protect my friends, comrades, and loved ones. Uh, I'd like to once again thank all of you for your support and solidarity. It absolutely means the world to me to know that I am not alone and that I am dealing with this with friends and loved ones who have my back. In international news, a week of riots raged through immigrant neighborhoods in Stockholm, Sweden in response to police killing an elderly man. May 29th marked an international day of action to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Bolivian government's repression against anarchists in La Paz, alleged to have participated in the defense of Tipnis, an indigenous territory and national park, through a series of arsons, bombings, and sabotage that were claimed by the informal anarchist federation International Revolutionary Front. Three days of events and actions took place in Santiago, Chile, in memory of Mauricio Morales, an anarchist who was killed four years ago when a bomb he was carrying during an anti-prison action exploded prematurely. 
Actions included the torching of a police station by a group called the Incendiary Cell for the Subversion of the Existent, while another called the Anarchic Gang of Fury claimed credit for an attack on a prison guard's gym. Federal police in Brussels, Belgium, raided three homes in the Akrata Anarchist Library, arresting 11 anarchist comrades on terrorism charges. The raids, titled Operation Ashes, were intended to disrupt a vibrant insurrectionary culture that produced countless publications, texts, and posters alongside years of fierce anti-capitalist and anti-prison resistance. Miners in South Africa continued a wildcat strike against the orders of union bureaucrats and the ruling ANC party. Company police attacked strikers with rubber bullets, injuring 20. And now, for the latest internet fad, Facebook terrorists. In Sabadell, Spain, police arrested five anarchist youth on charges of glorification of terrorism and of being members of a group called Anarchist Black Flag for posts they made on Facebook. While a teenage hip-hop artist outside Boston, Massachusetts, faces 20 years in prison for communicating terrorist threats for a silly Facebook rant that referenced the Boston Marathon bombing. And environmental protests continue to rage around the world, with clashes erupting at a coal seam gas company in Queensland, Australia, while hundreds of indigenous protesters in Malaysia rallied against the construction of hydropower dams. Meanwhile, Tanzanian President Kikweti called out the military to quash protests against a gas pipeline's construction in Mitwara, saying, I believe it is something unacceptable that national resources can be restricted only to the place where they are found. It has never happened in any country of this world. There is no such policy anywhere, and it cannot start from Mitwara. Nothing we could have said illustrates the connection between the state and environmental destruction more clearly. Of course, for most of the time that humans have lived on the Earth, natural resources were restricted to the place where they were found. But wherever states emerged, resource extraction emerged in tandem, enriching elites at the expense of massive numbers of people and the land that nourished them. Which leads us to our theme for this episode. We'll begin our conversation on green anarchism with this episode's entries from the CrimeThink Contradictionary. This episode is brought to you by Accident and sustainable technology. Accident, a statistical inevitability. Some nuclear power plants are built on fault lines, but every mine, dam, oil rig, and waste dump is founded upon a tacit acceptance of the worst case scenario. On a long enough timeline, everything that can go wrong will, however small the likelihood is from one day to the next. The responsible parties may wring their hands about the Fukushima meltdown and the Gulf of Mexico oil spill and the Exxon Valdez and Hurricane Katrina and Chernobyl, Bhopal, Haiti, but accident is no accident. Sustainable technology. One can also sustain injuries at least up to a point. For more explorations of the war in every word, visit crimethink.com slash contradictionary. Last time on The Ex-Worker, we heard a dialogue about work, how it works, and some anarchist critiques of it. 
So we know that capitalism controls our time and how we relate to one another. But of course, it doesn't just affect us humans. It also has a huge impact on the other animals and plants who call the Earth home, not to mention the planet itself. We all know the environment is in deep trouble. Even most politicians have finally acknowledged that something is going on. Meanwhile, many of the activists and scientists who have been saying the same thing for more than 40 years worry that it may be too late. An unusually dry summer that very much reflects what the climate models that we used predicted decades ago. What we feared might be true is in fact coming true. 61% of the land in the lower 48 states is in drought condition. 112 degrees in Georgia, 113 in South Carolina. In Kansas, it was 118 degrees. We're definitely, in my mind, in a cooling period. That's a $6 million question. Is this global warming? What uh, we are seeing right now is weather on steroids, the steroids of climate change. It wasn't just the U.S. There's excess rainfall also in Brazil, which hurt the crop in South America. We live now in India's monsoon season. Record rainfall, incredible pictures coming through. Millions of people across China have been affected by widespread flooding. Devastation in southern Russia. A freak superstorm. Three times larger than Katrina. The biggest storm I've ever seen in 40 years. Tracking. Polar ice sheets in Greenland are melting at five times the pace of just a few years ago. This is hard evidence. Okay, I get it. This stuff isn't as brand new as the supposedly green condos that just went up near my house. The environmental critique of capitalism has been around for a long time, since way before climate change became such a hot topic. But in the meantime, governments and businesses are scrambling to cash in on the public's growing unease about global warming. Now you can buy away your fears with energy-efficient light bulbs and carbon-neutral flights. But individual consumer choice isn't the problem. Green capitalism is still capitalism. And as long as our way of life is based on domination and hierarchy, it will always require the exploitation of people and all life on Earth. In this feature, we'll look at the ways people have rebelled against the environmentally devastating forces of capitalism, a rich history of struggles and ideas, and a truly epic battle against the forces of state repression that continues to this day. Let's begin with a story from England in the early 1800s. Increasingly poor factory conditions left many workers fed up, especially those who remembered what life was like before their land-based way of living was taken away from them and exchanged for long days in windowless rooms before the factories they worked in turned the air they breathed black. Yorkshire, machine breakers, Luddites, march by night. The night of November 4th, 1811 was cloudy, but still not winter cold. In the little village of Bullwell, a small band gathered in the darkness, pulled up scarves around their faces, hoisted their weapons, and marched in soldierly fashion to their destination. To preserve their anonymity, the men are directed by number. 3.15 left, 8 and 18 right, on front out. Outside the house of a master weaver, They posted a guard to make sure no neighbors interfered with their work, forced their way inside through shutters or doors, and destroyed half a dozen moving frames. A week later, the workers attacked again. Same procedure, same target. Only this time, the master weaver was ready. Take aim at the windows. Fire! 
The attackers approached the house, demanding that he let them in or surrender his frames. He refused, and a fusillade of 18 or 20 shots was exchanged. One weaver from a nearby village was killed. His comrades carried off the body and returned with a fury, breaking down the door. They smashed the frames and some of the furniture, set fire to the house, and dispersed into the night. Never identified. Never caught. More attacks followed in the coming weeks. With Weaver's taverns as rallying points, news spread from village to village. Inspired by the success of the first actions, communities all over the north of England started to act. At least a hundred frames were attacked in the last week of November, another hundred and fifty or more in December. There's an outrageous spirit of tumult and riot. The magistrates of Nottingham declared to the public in November 1811, Houses are broken into by our men. Many stalking frames are destroyed. The lives of opposers are threatened. Arms are seized. Ace stacks are fired. And the private property destroyed. The spirit of rebellion rapidly spread across the northern counties of England, uniting under the pseudonym Ned Ludd, a reference to a fictitious frame-breaking folk character. Posters were pinned up on the doors of offending workshops, warning them to concede to the demands of Ned Ludd's army or suffer the consequences. For many businessmen, the threat worked as well as the act. The repression following these attacks prevented the full-on insurrection the magistrates had predicted. Frame-breaking became a capital offense, and the presence of the army, as well as volunteer citizen militia, helped curtail more attacks and temporarily quelled the rage of the workers. The bosses had won this battle, but the war raged on. The Luddites weren't environmentalists in the sense that we understand today, but they did connect their miserable work conditions to their displacement from their land and prior way of life and the destruction of the natural beauty around them. Not to mention that these early rebellions set the stage for the next 200 years of resistance and inspired future environmentally conscious anti-capitalists. Fast forward to the early 20th century. Increasing industrialization and the restructuring of production after World War II led to social unrest in the 1960s and 70s. Many young people were ripe with a new consciousness about the environmentally and socially devastating effects of capitalist production and U.S. imperialism. Initially, activists focused on changing state policies to put restrictions on industry and preserve natural resources. But soon it became clear that government regulation was inadequate and the environmental devastation was out of control. The ongoing civil rights and anti-war movements reinforced this broadening suspicion of the American government. Radical environmentalists adopted an anti-capitalist analysis that included women's liberation, black power, and indigenous struggles. As governments continued to churn out nuclear arms and power plants, Direct action and resistance flourished as people put their bodies in the way of these irreversible developments. Anti-nuclear protest camps sprang up all over the U.S., Europe, and Asia. In the midst of the 1970s energy crisis, mainstream environmental organizations redirected popular focus back on to personal consumption and reform. One such initiative, Earth Day, spawned massive but relatively toothless demonstrations. The environmental movement had retreated from its rebellious potential to crawl back into its bureaucratic shell, never to emerge again. 
During this time, anarchist magazines such as Fifth Estate served as an outlet for discussion, with writers such as Freddie Perlman and David Watson elaborating on burgeoning critiques of civilization and technology. Other publications, such as Anarchy, a journal of desire armed, and later Green Anarchy magazine, would continue to explore these trajectories. Resistance was brewing, and the concept of direct action was taking hold. The idea that people shouldn't just wait for representatives to change policies, but should enact change themselves. In the early 1980s, a crew of eco-anarchists fed up with mainstream environmental institutions formed a new group called Earth First. They not only militantly defended the last fragments of the wild, but even attempted to reverse the process of industrialization by pulling down power lines and dams. During this time, groups around the world turned to direct action in environmental struggles. But what set Earth First apart was its commitment to biocentrism, the belief that humans are not superior to other living beings, but just one small part of a larger interconnected ecosystem. Deep ecology, a more formalized philosophy advocating for the inherent worth of all life outside of its utility to human beings, also took hold in the movement during this time. This spiritual outlook marked a significant departure from the historical anarchists who espoused atheism and the belief that humankind could be liberated from wage labor by science and progress. Biocentrism and deep ecology weren't new ideas. Many of their new proponents drew inspiration from, or at worst, appropriated, indigenous and non-Western cultures and religious practices that centered a harmonious relationship with the earth. In Western thought, biocentrism can be traced back to the early 20th century. In his essay on The Sense of Nature, French anarchist geographer Elisee Reclus wrote about the secret harmony that exists between the earth and humanity, and warned that when reckless societies allow themselves to meddle with that which creates the beauty of their domain, they always end up regretting it. So by the mid-1980s, Earth First groups emerged all over, halting logging and oil drilling operations through civil disobedience and sabotage. They published Eco-Defense, a field guide to monkey wrenching, a 350-page manual on how to disable pretty much any machine with which civilization attacks the wild. Earth Firsters wrecked machinery, occupied forests, subverted billboards, dug up logging roads, spiked trees, invaded offices, and smashed windows in defense of the earth. The movement was on the move, but so was the state. The FBI wasn't about to let a crew of hippies, feminists, cowboys, and desert anarchists continue to hammer company profits. From the late 1980s onwards, the radical environmental movement faced a wave of reaction that included infiltration, setups, conspiracy trials, raids, and corporate-directed anti-environmental hate groups. The FBI even made an assassination attempt on Judy Berry, an Earth First and labor activist whom they perceived as a leader, by placing a bomb in her car. This was a continuation of the FBI's counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO, previously unleashed against radical groups in the 1960s and 70s. Ideological splits and state repression seriously weakened Earth First in the U.S., However, it survived as an organization through the 90s and 2000s, moving much more above ground. 
Meanwhile, the early actions and attitude of American Earth First inspired a vibrant culture of eco-conscious protest camps and actions in the UK. The Brits took the spirit of Earth First and ran with it, regularly showing up en masse to joyfully trash fields of genetically modified crops, sabotage construction sites, or reclaim urban centers. In 1995, Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber, stood trial for 23 ecologically motivated attacks carried out over nearly 20 years. From a remote cabin in Montana, Kaczynski sent homemade bombs to individuals in the airline and biotech research industries. Prior to his arrest, he had used the threat of more bombings to blackmail the New York Post into publishing his manifesto entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. While many anarchists disagreed with Kaczynski's tactics, his actions helped bring anti-civilization, or anti-civ, ideas into the public eye. During this time, the writings of green anarchists such as John Zerzan and Wolfie Landstriker became more visible and popular, and the U.S. saw a dramatic increase in green anarchist, anti-civ, and anarcho-primitivist thought. Anarcho-primitivism espouses total rejection of industrial civilization and domestication. Primitivist theorists draw on anthropological research to argue that agriculture and animal husbandry were the genesis of the alienation, social stratification, and coercion that we experience in contemporary capitalist society. Simply put, primitivism is what you get when, when you combine the best insights of anarchism and anthropology. Author John Zerzan explains how primitivist critiques reveal limitations in the traditional anarchist analysis of capitalism. Abolish capitalism. Well, okay, again, for those anarchists who want the modern world, want mass production society, industrial life, globalization, and everything else, uh, show me how you get rid of wage labor and the commodity, which is uh, the, pay the paycheck and the price tag, the essence of what is capitalism. Well, then, what do people get if they are doing the functions, they're in the mines, they're in the smelters, they're doing all this stuff to make the modern world possible? Well, then, isn't that wage labor? What else would it, would it be? How else could it operate? And the same with the commodity. How do people get what they need? You wouldn't want to call it wage labor because you're a good uh, leftist anarchist. So, in other words, the, both of these are insuperable problems for the people that uh, defend uh, the traditional anarchist point of view. If you have a simple society, if you, ha if you don't have social stratification and social complexity, if you have a face-to-face -face world, well, you don't have those problems. Anarcho-primitivists strive to rewild, a process of deeply reconnecting with the earth not limited to philosophizing or practicing primitive skills, but also challenging our pervasive dislocation from ourselves, each other, and our ecosystems. Many primitivists also advocate for the active dismantling of the physical infrastructure of civilization. Enter the Earth Liberation Front, or ELF. Structured after the Animal Liberation Front, which had been active since the 70s, these groups have no membership list or formal structure. Any action can be carried out by an autonomous cell or individual and claimed for the ELF or ALF as long as it falls within a few basic guidelines. 
The action must expose and inflict maximum economic damage on those who profit from the destruction of the natural environment or exploit animals, while harming no animal or human life. The first ELF actions took place in 1992 in England, and the tactic quickly spread in the U.S., where the ELF claimed credit for over 1,200 actions in the 90s and 2000s. Hundreds remain unsolved to this day. Meanwhile, green anarchist and primitivist ideas became associated with dropout culture, crust punk, and lifestyle anarchism. Teenagers and 20-somethings skipped out on high school or college to travel to summit protests and earth-first action camps. The Cascadia Free State blocked a logging road with trenches, tree sits, and an epic fortress for 11 months in a valiant attempt to halt logging in an area home to an endangered owl. The Minnehaha Free State blocked a planned highway construction through an indigenous sacred site in Minneapolis, Minnesota for 16 months. Through the 90s, many anarchists adopted a militant vegan lifestyle, participating in or vocally supporting ALF actions and other campaigns targeting factory farms, animal testing labs, and other businesses that exploit animals. The turn of the millennium saw escalating anti-globalization protests, most notably against the World Trade Organization in Seattle in 1999, where massive demonstrations comprised of environmental, labor, and social justice activists took over downtown and a powerful black bloc wreaked havoc on corporate targets. The anarchist movement in the U.S. seemed to be gaining momentum, until... Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. Uh, today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Suddenly the news media was chattering with a new buzzword. Terrorism. Terror. Terrorist. Terrorism. Terror. 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 Terrorist. 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 Terror organization. Terrorist attacks. Terror. While Muslim and immigrant communities received the brunt of populist hatred, attacks and government repression, the U.S. government also used this opportunity to address its so-called domestic terrorism problem, the radical environmental movement. With increased funding and new powers under the Patriot Act, the FBI honed in on hundreds of unsolved ELF and ALF actions. In 2005, with the help of a former radical who cooperated with the FBI to avoid drug charges, the government arrested 13 ELF saboteurs. Each of them were charged with participation in an assortment of major actions, including the spectacular arson of a ski resort in Vail, Colorado, that caused $12 million in damage. Eight of the indictees testified against their former comrades. Four stayed true to their principles and refused to cooperate. Four were able to flee abroad, although two were later recaptured. One more defendant, Avalon, tragically died in custody in an alleged suicide shortly after his arrest. This wave of repression, dubbed Operation Backfire by the government and known as the Green Scare among activists, aimed to undermine the radical environmental movement by targeting both those who had taken direct action as well as anyone who might consider it. Several more sweeps of repression ensnared young activist Eric McDavid for simply discussing actions, as well as targeting older, established activists such as Marie Mason for her prominent role in many ELF actions. 
Prosecutors use the so-called terrorism enhancement to lengthen prison sentences in cases involving increasingly broad types of organizing, including nearly any form of environmental direct action. Similarly, since the passage of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, it is now legally an act of terrorism to interfere with any business that makes money by exploiting animals. A recent series of laws known as Ag-Gag bills criminalizes even filming agricultural operations, including farms and slaughterhouses. This is a lot of repression, but what were we expecting? After all, we're against the state, and we have to expect that they're going to push back against us. We have to learn from our mistakes in the Green Scare and face what comes with dignity and commitment to our beliefs. Even in the digital age, as it becomes increasingly difficult to find space that isn't surveilled and policed, resistance still lives on, and ecologically-based struggles are spreading. Indigenous people, anarchists, and environmentalists in Canada are waging resistance against Plan Nord, a devastating project that will tap resources in the north of Quebec, some of the last remaining wild space in Canada. Russian activists have been executing a militant campaign of direct action near Moscow, where a proposed highway is slated to annihilate the centuries-old Kimki forest. Farmers in Yogyakarta, Indonesia, continue to wage resistance against proposed iron mining on their coastal farmland. And activists and farmers in northwestern France have occupied the site of a proposed airport called the Zad, the so-called development zone, and transformed it into an autonomous, police-free zone à défendre, a zone to be defended. The focus of Earth First in the U.S. has largely shifted towards opposing energy extraction projects, such as oil pipelines and hydraulic fracturing, a strategic move given widespread sympathy from the environmental mainstream. Given this, green anarchists are questioning how to engage with and differentiate themselves from the left and mainstream environmental movement, striving to break out of the mold of single-issue politics and bring the battle for wild nature into a wider context of social struggle. Inspired by ecological actions and ideas, many anarchists continue their struggles in the streets as well as in the woods. The front lines of the industrial assault on life appear everywhere, from clear-cut forests to concrete jungles, in mass extinction and our own suburban domestication. In defending the wild spaces that remain, we can confront the hierarchies that constrain all of our lives, wherever we begin to fight back. And now it's time for The Chopping Block, where in each episode we review a classic or contemporary anarchist text and let you know what we think. Today we're focusing on one of the foundational texts of the green anarchist critique of civilization, Against History, Against Leviathan, by the prolific Czech-born anarchist writer Freddie Perlman. In his masterpiece, Against History, Against Leviathan, Freddie Perlman overhauls our understanding of history with a scathing critique of civilization. 
According to Perlman, the advent of civilization signaled the dissolution of pre-existing ecstatic human communities and the emergence of a monstrous repressive leviathan, an enormous all-devouring beast that symbolizes the logic of a totalitarian system. Perlman's primary question, why do people remain complicit in the theft of their living energies, is answered in vivid concrete images. The Leviathan itself is characterized as a carcass brought to artificial life by the motions of the human beings trapped inside. For Perlman, this is not some historical puzzle, but our current dilemma. The enslavement of humans has become like a heavy armor or an ugly mask, more and more difficult to remove, emptying its victim of life, of ecstasy. The empty space is filled with springs and wheels, with dead things, with Leviathan's substance. Perlman posits that the supposed harsh material conditions before civilization weren't as harsh as we've always been told, describing pre-civilized life as people who were much but had little, a life focused not on possession of things, but rather possession of being. This rediscovery of the primitive signals not only a return to nature, but a new direction for freedom. He wrote, The state of nature is a community of freedoms, a garden of earthly delights filled with dances, games, and feasts. This is the affirmation of paradise on earth, both in the remote suppressed past and as a dormant yet imminent promise. Today, such provocative declarations elicit the same scorn that was shown towards witches, pagan dancers, and native communities as they were put to the torch. Rationalism, the brutalized logic of slaves whose insides are filled with springs and wheels, cannot accommodate the possibility of paradise. They apply the word wild to the free, Perlman wrote, but it is another public secret that the domesticated occasionally become wild but are never free, so long as they remain in their pens. Our capacity to become wild, to transgress the limitations of our pens, allows for hope. I take it for granted that resistance is the natural response to dehumanization, he observed, and therefore does not have to be explained or justified. And the potential is immediate, a presence within all of us, since people never become altogether empty shells a glimmer of life remains. Many who pick up against history have to give it a few tries. It's thick with historical references, but wading through the necessary citations is well worth it. If you can put aside the occasionally patronizing idealization of ancient and indigenous cultures, against history sets out the fundamental critique of civilization underlying primitivist and situationist strains of thought among anarchists ever since. Against History, Against Leviathan was first printed by Black and Red Press in 1983 and is available through their website, blackandred.org, or through LBC at littleblackcart.com. Now it's time for the mugshot our profile of a contemporary anarchist project. Today, we're speaking with Sycamore, an anarchist from the Midwestern U.S. who has spent the last seven months in Texas working on a campaign called Tar Sands Blockade. Taking a break from the action and returning home, 
He sat down with the ex-worker to reflect on some of his experiences with this project, and looks to the future of resistance to the pipeline, ecological destruction, and global capitalism. So the Keystone XL pipeline is is an extension of an already existing pipeline, um, and it's going to be expanded even further in the next few years as part of the network of, of tar sands pipelines all the way from Alberta, Canada, to refineries in central Illinois and the Gulf Coast of Texas. The campaign began when students in North Texas hooked up with a landowner, a former high-wire circus performer and carpenter, who had vowed to resist the Keystone XL by any means necessary. The students later discovered he was building a secret blockade, a massive fortress over 30 feet tall and 100 feet wide, rigged up with seven tree-sit platforms. I showed up one day before the police discovered the blockade, and I climbed into a tree without any sort of legal briefing or like any understanding of, of the context there. And the next day, as like I was meeting other people who were like sleeping up there, they were like kind of describing the situation with like a lawsuit that had just been issued, as well as like some felony charges that people were facing because of lockdowns. Along with occupying trees directly in the way of the proposed construction, activists have performed lockdowns, a set of tactics based on the use of devices that physically attach protesters to buildings, machines, trees, or each other in order to make it more difficult for police to remove them from an area. I think there were maybe three or four lockdowns leading up to when the police discovered the blockade. And later, those people, because they were the first to be arrested, were facing the most serious charges and also um, a pretty serious like lawsuit at the hands of the corporation building the pipeline, TransCanada. Texas's especially strict laws have been a thorn in the side of anti-pipeline activists. If you buy something alter it in some way, and then commit a crime, it's considered a felony. So if you buy a PVC pipe and drill a bolt into the middle and then hook a carabiner to it to like connect your arm, you're a felon at that point. The campaign has experienced increasing repression, multiple felony charges for activists, high bail amounts that have bankrupted the campaign several times, and FBI harassment. Currently, 12 people will likely serve a year or more in jail. But the high cost of repression is nothing compared to the havoc that these energy extraction projects will wreak on the North American ecosystem. And Sycamore sees resistance to tar sands as part of a larger anti-capitalist strategy. The Alberta Tar Sands Giga Project is like the size of England and is the largest capital investment project on Earth right now. If everything goes according to plan, it's slated to be like the economic engine of North American capitalism in the foreseeable future. Although the pipeline itself is harmful and it is like destroying forests and the drinking water of people living along the route, stopping the pipeline for me is less of a goal than a tactic. Because the tar sands mines are bottlenecks for global capital, they're huge choke points to apply pressure to. And that can cause like severe economic damage to the industry and to Canadian national pride generally, which has been like one of the goals of like the indigenous resistance there um, is that the the Canadian government is now labeling itself as the new energy supplier of the world. Sycamore continued to talk about how the struggle can be broadened beyond Texas. One thing that I've I've become interested in in the last few months since moving home is maybe starting to focus less energy on on resisting the Keystone XL. I personally think it's become 
kind of a bit of like a red herring and a distraction to like the dozens of other tar sands pipelines that that no one is talking about right now and that are going through even more sensitive regions like the Great Lakes area. I think there's three tar sands pipelines that are being built next year through the Great Lakes. But those involved in the campaign are thinking ahead. Lately, I've been coordinating with a group of people from different anti-extraction struggles that are resisting other pipelines, as well as mountaintop removal and fracking and tar sands mining in Utah. And this like loose group of people has called for a week of escalated action against the extraction industry from June 24th to 29th. And I personally think this would be like a great time to experiment with new tactics um, instead of trying to like reproduce a lot of the same things that obviously like were not working for us in Texas. For more information about the Tar Sands Blockade, visit tarsandsblockade.org. And finally, it's time for next week's news, upcoming resistance events around the world. As we speak, the first anarchist book fair in Medellin, Colombia, is taking place. From June 1st through 3rd, there will be a variety of workshops, readings, and discussions exploring anarchist ideas in the South American nation's second largest city. June 3rd through 9th, the Black Mesa Indigenous Support Collective is hosting a gathering celebrating the resistance of the Big Mountain Black Mesa community on Diné land in occupied Arizona. The gathering will focus on decolonizing the mind and the mine, and will include workshops and conversations among indigenous and other frontline resistance communities from around the country. Participation for the gathering is currently full, but to support or to find out more, check out supportblackmesa.org. The Against the Prison System Festival takes place in Helsinki, Finland on the 8th and 9th, and from the 10th through the 16th, a week of events for the Anarchist Book Fair in Barcelona, Spain, as well as the Swedish Anarchist Book Fair in Stockholm on the 15th. June 11th is an important day for prisoner solidarity, honoring long-term anarchist prisoners Marie Mason and Eric McDavid. Solidarity events will take place across the U.S. and internationally to commemorate these victims of the Green Scare and show our determination not only to remember and support them, but to continue their struggles. Find out more at june11.org. And speaking of prison, we have more political prisoner birthdays coming up. On June 9th, Ramon Labanino Salazar, one of the Cuban Five, imprisoned by the U.S. government for monitoring Miami-based right-wing terrorist groups. On the 12th, Jared Chase, one of the NATO Five we discussed earlier, facing terrorism charges after being framed by an informant for supposedly planning to make a Molotov cocktail. And on the 14th, Seku Odinga, a former member of the Black Liberation Army charged with the liberation of Asada Shakur. Incidentally, Asada Shakur, the Black Liberation Revolutionary currently living in Cuba, made the news recently when the FBI added her to its most wanted terrorists list and doubled the bounty on her head to $2 million. Yet, in spite of that, over 33 years after her escape from prison, she is still free. So mad props to Seku Odinga, Mutulu Shakur, Sylvia Baraldini, the late Marilyn Buck, and all the other freedom fighters who made so many sacrifices for Asada and for all of us to be free. Addresses for writing to all of these prisoners, plus links to all of the events we announced, can be found at our website, crimethink.com slash podcast. 
That does it for this episode of The X Worker. Thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Alanis. And I'm Clara. And we'll be back with our fourth episode on June 16th, when we'll explore an anarchist perspective on prisons. This has been a production of the CrimeThink X Workers Collective. The fringe of every mass, the exception to every rule, the eye of every storm. Thanks to Sycamore for coming on the show to speak with us. And again, thanks to Underground Reverie for the terrific music you hear on the show. Don't forget to check us out at crimethink.com slash podcast. If you've got any comments or feedback or ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at podcast at crimethink.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 202-59-NO-WORK. That is 202-596-6975. Also, if you downloaded this podcast through iTunes, leave us a rating and let us know what you think. Till next time, stay wild.